Thanks, Bill, and thank you, Jay. Uh, thank you all. Uh, I'm, I have to say I'm a little embarrassed to be standing up here in front of all of you because for a couple of reasons. One, there are a lot of energy experts in the room, and second of all, uh, there are many people in the, in the room that have really uh, been a key part of, of REV, and so, uh, again, welcome. Uh, I do have a presentation, and so maybe it would be useful for, for, uh, for me to run through the presentation because um, I think we're not bad at policy, but we're not so good at explaining policy. It's not a core competence, and, and the uh, power sector, the energy sector, isn't always very sexy. So we would always very much welcome the input of people that could help us figure out how we can communicate what we're doing in a way that is uh, understandable. My wife tells me, uh, what's the 30, what's the one floor elevator pitch? And I'm not good at that. So in any case, I also want to, you know, for, for also want to thank this group for all the work you do. And in particular, I'm grateful for the interest in state work. Because uh, so much of energy discussion uh, often takes place about what are the feds going to do. And actually, for a long time, perhaps people didn't realize it, states have a really important role in energy policy. It's actually shared with the federal government. And the other thing is, obviously, the energy transition is occurring. It's not something that is going to occur. It, it is already underway. And so what we see is, as Justice Brandeis said, states are laboratories of democracy. And across many states, not just New York, uh, and not just uh, blue states, but also red states are trying to figure out uh, what this energy transition means at the state level. And so, as in other areas, we might expect in the past, in other policy areas, in the telecom area is a good example, it may be that, that a lot of policy is going to get worked out at the state level and eventually will get rolled up uh, at the federal level when there's more consensus about certain areas. Because as, as Jay said, these, and as Bill said, these, these energy issues uh, in the past have not been partisan issues. They've often been uh, geographical issues, not, not, not uh, political partisanship. And, and so I think that uh, we have a lot to learn from each other from different states. OK, so the first thing is the, it's interesting for those that are not familiar with states. So um, one of the, in about half the states in, uh, in, in white, these are states where utilities are fully integrated, which means utilities own, when we talk about utilities, they own generation, uh, transmission, and distribution. And the states in blue, and New York is one of them, uh, when we talk about utilities, they're just wires companies. So Con Ed and National Grid are here. They don't own uh, generation in New York State. They are just wires companies. And, if, and so it means that the generators get their economic rents from prices in wholesale markets. And the utilities, the distribution utilities, get their returns from uh, a regulated rate of return in the past. All right, so we have a clean energy standing. 50% of our power is going to come uh, from renewable sources by 2030. And this is, not a, this is not a goal. This is a mandate. But we're not going to achieve this 50% renewable mandate by doing what we've been doing 
which has been to bolt on distributed energy resources and renewable energy onto a grid architecture that wasn't designed for this purpose. So we have a grid architecture, it's hard to see, but this is the sort of basic grid architecture of, of uh, George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla. And this architecture has uh, electrons flowing in one direction over sometimes hundreds of miles from large power plants to consumers. And supply is determined on a given day by a fixed estimate of demand. Um, and what we've been doing is we have been bolting onto this grid all kinds of resources for which it was never intended for. So we've bolted solar onto the grid. And so what's happened is it's been, and other things, it's been good for those customers. So you're a solar customer, maybe get cheaper power, you have uh, combined heat and power, maybe have more reliability. You have a fuel cell, maybe have better power quality. There are lots of reasons. Good for those customers. But the question has been, has it been good for all customers? And this has, of course, been at the root of the debate in other states about net metering. So the question is, we need to have a different grid, a fundamentally different grid architecture. And this one, you can see, is more complicated. And, you can, and you've seen this picture one way or another in the past. But this is a grid that's a mix of large power plants and distributed energy resources, that electrons flow in more than one direction, where supply and de demand are dynamic, and the intermittency of renewable resources are paired with storage and adjustable load. And arguably, we're never going to be able to decarbonize our, our whole economy unless we build this kind of grid. Because when we think about electrification of transportation or electrification of heat, we need to have this kind of grid. So the question is, why aren't we building this 21st century grid? And it's because we have policies and regulations that in the past have just uh, been keeping us, or that have been, we've just been rebuilding the old grid over and over again. And so actually what we've been trying to do in a, in a kind of analogous way, in the same way that we've been bolting on physical resources onto a grid for which it was never intended, we've been bolting policies onto a policy regime that was also intended to do something entirely different. We want, a solar, want solar? Great, let's bolt on a solar policy. Want energy efficiency policy? Let's bolt on an energy efficiency policy. So the good news in all this, in build, thinking about this new grid that we need to build, is that the current grid is energy inefficient, and we know that. That's not really news to anybody here, I think, because it was never designed to be energy efficient. But the other part is that the grid, grid, the current grid, is financially inefficient. And so one measure of the financial inefficiency of the grid is to look at it in terms of its average capacity utilization, which in New York and in most places is a little bit more than 50%. Now, if you look at other capital-intensive industries in the last 35 or 40 years, in order to respond to global competition, they've had to significantly improve 
their average capacity utilization to compete through adoption of new technology, changes in financial incentives, and changes in business model. We may not like the airlines, but the airlines used to have 50% average capacity utilization. Now they're at 90% average capacity utilization. And that has resulted, because of what customers have wanted, significantly lower costs. But it's been true in other industries, too. So the grid is built for the hottest hours of the days or the year, but customers pay all year long. And we can have a debate with the, with the utility industry about how much uh, excess capacity we need, but arguably we can do a lot better. And I want to tell you that if we could move the average capacity utilization over time, uh, to something that looks closer to other industries. We're talking about billions of dollars a year in New York State. And those billions of dollars could be used to provide uh, eventual customer savings or could be the source of funding to help build this 21st century grid. And be, as I say here, because the current grid is so financially inefficient, we can largely build a new grid within the cost envelope of the existing bill. And this is really where, when we talk about partisan issues, this is where uh, Republicans and Democrats ought to be able to find common ground. So when you boil REV down, reforming the energy vision, it, it, it kind of boils, there are lots of, lots of policies, lots of initiatives, but when you really boil it down, it comes down to three buckets. The first is locational value for distributed energy resources. Because if we think about this grid that's supposed to be a mix of large power plants and distributed resources, where are the distributed resources supposed to be? Where, well, they should be on places on the grid where they're uh, going to be good for not just those customers, but where distributed resources can benefit all customers. And uh, so let's talk about that. So it's often in the case where there's a grid constraint. In a grid constraint, um, if you think about electrons flowing like water, uh, there are constraints in the grid. Every utility has constraints in the grid. Uh, we're blessed in these purple areas to have a number of grid constraints, although we don't call them grid constraints. We call them opportunity zones. And so obviously locating distributed resources in these areas of grid constraint is where they're going to have the most value. And so providing a price signal to developers to go in these locations is going to mean not only lower cost because you have resources dedicated to developing those projects in those locations, but it's going to mean that the resources are going to be located in areas which are going to be good for those customers, but also provide economic value to the, the grid as a whole. And so this has been the successor to net metering in New York State. We haven't done it perfectly, but uh, we have now established a value for distributed energy resources as a price signal for uh, the market. And that is now being replicated slowly, I think, is going to be replicated in other places around the country. So 
The second thing is to change regulated utility financial incentives and business practices. Um, because in New York State, when we talk about the price signals associated with the value distributed energy resources, you know, that's great for the market, has nothing to do with utility financial incentives. The way things work in New York State, again, the utilities are wires companies. Uh, we have what's called decoupling, which means the utilities get no, have no financial compensation based upon use more electricity. They don't get paid any more money. They get rates which compensate the utility for the cost of service plus a rate of return on capital that's deployed. So really, when you talk about changing tariffs, you're just providing price signals. You're rearranging the pot of revenues. You're not changing the total revenues for the utility. So if we're going to change, in our view, if we're going to build this grid of the future, it is absolutely critical to look at changing regulatory, regulated utilities, financial incentives, and business practices. So, and this is where I know some of my utility colleagues are going to object, um, but this is the traditional utility business model, for dummies maybe. It's, you know, through rates, utilities recover the cost of providing the service plus a regulated return on the capital deployed. The more capital that's deployed in the past, the greater the profit. The more capital deployed, higher rates unless there are more customers to share the costs. So what's wrong with this model? This is where we're going to may have some more debate. We think it's expensive. It's hardly, we can be hardly surprised that we have low average capacity utilization if you pay a business and send a business based upon how much capital that's deployed. So we have capital that's built for the hottest couple days of the year, but we pay for it all year long. I mean, we would argue that it's a, a deterrent to the adoption of new technology. If you think about IT and how IT has revolutionized other industries, how does a regulated utility view IT investments? Are those investments actually investments, capital investments on which a utility can earn a rate of return? Or are they actually reducing traditional capital and so therefore there's less opportunity to earn a profit because there's less traditional capital deployed. And in fact, we think that also it discourages the use of distributed energy resources because in fact, it's in these areas of grid constraint that there's the potential to actually keep building capital as opposed to uh, encouraging distributed energy resources from being deployed. Because the thing about New York is the utilities were, have not permitted the utilities, just like the utilities don't own large-scale generation, they are not permitted, with rare exceptions, to own distributed energy resources. So if we want to have the distributed energy resources located in areas that make sense, it requires a change in how utilities approach their business model. So I want, this is a customer bill, a typical customer bill, and uh, uh, I want you to look at this red line. The utility profit is 6 to 7% of the average customer bill. So uh, 93 to 94% of the bill is a pass-through cost from the utility to customers, on which the utility earns nothing, just gets cost recovery. 
And so when we talk about sort of financial inefficiency or uh, challenges to innovation, we need to look at the bill. Because in every other business that you know of, that 93 to 94% would be thought of as a wallet share, as the opportunity to bring in innovation, to reduce costs, improve value to customers, and for the business to earn something for itself. And up to now, that has not been an opportunity for utilities. The only opportunity the utility has had for the profit has been based upon deployment of capital. Now, this is where there's the shout out to Con Ed, because um, this is really a, a critical change in the utility industry that began not far from here. So in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, there was an area of, um, is an area of load growth. Uh, and so the traditional solution would have been 1.2 billion in new substations that we might guess probably would have had about average capacity utilization of 54% like the rest of the system. And instead of a request for proposal that we're going to build 1.2 billion of substations, what ConEd did was something different. It was more along the lines of a request for solution. And instead of $1.2 billion, what came back from market participants was a range of solutions that included solar, storage, efficiency, CHP, and demand response that cost $200 million. So we're talking about a billion dollars of savings in capital, and that doesn't include the savings to customers that come from a reduction in delivering peak power costs to New York City in the middle of summer. And the solution also is cleaner, and it deploys innovative technology. And what's happened now, and this is really uh, a credit to all the utilities in the state, they have now adopted capital planning, what's called non-wires alternatives in the state. So National Grid is, I think you've got, you know, more than two dozen of these kind of projects under consideration in the state. So this utility procurement, we'll call it utility procurement 2.0, you don't need high tech to get going. So this is another call out to, uh, you know, bipartisanship. You don't need high tech for this. You don't need to figure out what the utility of the future is. Every utility knows when it's going to commit capital. That's not, you know, you know that's not high tech. Every utility uh, uh, knows kind of where there's an area of great constraint. So the utility can go to the market and say, this is what we were going to do, and this is what it was going to cost, and the market can come back and see if there's something that's better and cheaper under non-wires alternatives. And then the utility and the regulator can evaluate uh, the alternative. And if alternatives are cheaper, the utility can earn a share of savings. And that is how this model has developed in New York State, so that the utilities can earn a share of savings. So it is a different financial model than committing capital. It is a financial model which is about a share of savings. Now, just to give you an idea, this is a big idea. Because if every utility in the country follow this approach of non-wires solutions, the carbon benefit could reach 3.5 billion metric tons between now and 2030, which is the equivalent of the entire U.S. wind fleet today. 
this this one idea. Now, I want I showed you this chart before. Remember, this is the. I want you to look now at the light blue, which is about uh, half the cost of the customer bill, which is the fuel costs. Again, that's a pass-through cost on which the regulated utilities earn nothing until today, because now the utilities have an opportunity to earn a share of savings if customer power costs can go down from, uh, from fuel costs, from wholesale power costs. So we can go beyond this non-wires alternatives, beyond this deferred capital, which is another way of saying this thing, same thing. So utilities now have an incentive to reduce power supply costs, and we're now gonna see whether you know, the famous megawatts that people have talked about can really be a business because when you ride the subway and you see those uh, uh, signs that say, you know, turn in your refrigerator, get 50 bucks from, from Con Ed, or, you know, whatever it is, those 50 bucks isn't coming from Con Ed. It's coming from other customers. It's a program. It is not a business for Con Ed. This would be a business for Con Ed and for the other utilities. And we got to see if we're going to achieve what we need to achieve in terms of our emissions reductions. We, in our view, we must turn energy efficiency into a business as opposed to a matter of regulatory compliance. So the last thing is to uh, stimulate grid edge, grid edge activity with government resources. And what do we mean by that? Well, we have collected from customers more than a billion dollars a year in the past uh, to support clean energy programs, 85% of which are in the form of one-time grants. And so it's great, you build some projects, but are you really creating scale? Um, no, and so the question is, what else can we do? Because New York State, even as big a state as New York, we're never gonna influence the cost of wind turbines. We're never gonna influence the cost of solar panels. These hard costs, we're not a big enough market, but we can have a meaningful influence on the soft costs. So our $5.2 billion clean energy fund, the emphasis is on reducing soft costs like financing or the cost of customer acquisition. And so I think people are familiar with the Solarize programs. We didn't invent the Solarize programs. That's where a community gets together and, decide, and they want to deploy solar. This is an incredible bang for the buck for deploying uh, residential solar because this, the government is spending a relatively little amount of money to aggregate demand. And we've now done that across a variety of sectors. Um, so. Uh, this is a way in which we can lower soft costs by aggregating demand, by standardizing processes, by trying to figure out what data we can provide. And I can answer more if you have more questions on that. Lowering financing costs is the New York Green Bank. The New York Green Bank does not offer subsidized credit. But there are sectors in uh, the private sector financing markets where capital is not available. The problem is availability of credit, not the cost of credit. Because of bank capital rules, it's really expensive for a bank to lend generally, not just in the clean energy area, to small things, to things that uh, have uh, long maturity, uh, things that are just a little bit below investment grade. 
uh, these are really expensive for banks to, to lend to these kinds of things. And it's very expensive for a bank to give an unfunded line of credit. This is where the Green Bank has played a meaningful role. It's lent $600 million in New York State uh, that's leveraged more than three times to projects that would not have otherwise been built in New York State. And the money that came to fund the Green Bank came from what would have otherwise been one-time programs. So now instead of it just being a grant that would have been given out to build a project and that would have been the end of it, we get paid for the credit, get paid back, can re and can lend the money again and create much more scale than past programs. All right, this I'm coming coming to the end. The other reason why we're very focused on this uh, stimulating grid edge activity is we need to build an IT system on top of the physical system, right? You, that that grid that I described, that 21st century grid, is a smart grid. It requires a lot of IT. And we think that it's essential to have competitive market actors be in an interface with the distribution utilities to help build this IT system. So if you think about your phone, your phone, or you have an Apple phone, or whatever, Apple does not develop the apps. Apple has a platform. There's a feedback loop that Apple gets from investing, knows how to invest more in its platform to make that platform more valuable to the app providers. It's this market test to build a great IT system. And so that's what are the things that's critical in what we do to stimulate competitive markets to help build this great IT system which doesn't yet exist. And we are, do not believe, and this is maybe a debate for uh, another time, we're skeptical that any state that has a fully integrated utility that doesn't have robust competitive markets for around customers is gonna be very good at building this kind of IT infrastructure. It would be like Apple trying to come up with every app on its own. So I talked about Edison before. This is, this is the end here, you know. And the thing about, of course, Edison was about lighting and his ideas about lighting. But of course, you know, electricity is a lot more about lighting today. And so I just leave you with this thought that we may be again at a time where because of the effect of, of technology and distributed technology, which is around us, that there's going to be opportunities for a whole new set of ways in which we can get value from electrons. And so obviously people talk about transportation as an example, but it can be more than that. You know, and, and it's also about government policy because, you know, we think about, uh, you know, light bulbs, you should change your light bulbs because uh, to save money. Well, you know, there are people that care about that. But these light bulbs actually exist, which you can dim on your phone to have whatever color light you want. But can you imagine there are people that have developed lighting that help your kids sleep at night? Not your teenagers, they don't need that. That's a joke. But the point is, is that this is a value-added service, a, value, a, a change in the value of the electrons. You know, we could imagine an appliance leasing business 
similar to the solar leasing business, where the offer to customers is not about saving the planet, but new appliances. But the thing about these appliances in the new grid is uh, they're going to have devices in them to permit those uh, devices uh, to be aggregated and, and, the, and participate in the demand response market. They're going to be more energy efficient. And so there's a business model maybe for somebody in there that uh, can participate in the policies that we have in place. Or it's home health care. Because home health care, and we have had some companies talk to us about home health care. Home health care would be cheaper, better quality of care. It's going to require a home automation system. That home automation system can be monetized to provide energy benefits. You're not going to shut off somebody's respirator, but again, can be used to help shape the load. The point is, we don't know what kind of opportunities can come. We're trying to establish a basic policy platform. So it's not just about saving the planet or saving the money. It's about providing an opportunity for whoever can participate in competitive markets that's got an idea that can participate uh, on, on this basic platform. And so I just leave this uh, last thing, which is, you know, uh, Nest has got a million apps that are developed, one of which controls the temperature in people's beds. So it may be that the path to solution to climate change goes through somebody's bed. Thank you.